Okay, so we're studying this afternoon Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. And um, we'll pray before we read that. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would open the scripture to us and that you would open us to the scriptures, that we might receive them for that which they are, the very words of God. Father, may we hear with faith and respond in obedience. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to destroy it. And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Amen. May God bless his word to us. So as we're moving along forwards through the Gospel of Luke, and it's also a pattern that you pick up in the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark. There's this escalating debate both about Jesus and with Jesus. Those who had been the leaders of the Jewish religion really are not certain how they want to respond to Jesus coming in amongst them, preaching and teaching to people whom they consider to be sinners unworthy of the time of day and doing great and wonderful works, which frankly they themselves cannot do and they cannot understand. With both of it, your Bible like mine has probably got what we just read divided up into two paragraphs. The first paragraph concerns the walking through the grain fields and the, and the plucking of grain from the standing the standing grain and the second paragraph concerns the healing of the man with the withered hand or arm in a synagogue both paragraphs begin with on a sabbath and at verse 6 in the ESV on another sabbath on that which to the pharisees and also that which to the sadducees if they were given a mention was the most significant religious day of the week. On, on the day that they considered to be sacrosanct, on the day that they felt was so important that it had to be protected not only by God's law, but by their own laws. On the day that they took every possible opportunity 
of displaying their own religious devotion on the Sabbath. Remember Jesus had spoken about the wineskins, looking back just a bit at what we looked at last time we were in the Gospel of Luke, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Well, Luke has compiled his gospel in such a way that exactly what he meant at the end of what we call chapter 5 is now perfectly demonstrated in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Always remember with the Synoptic Gospels, the men who wrote them, who were moved to write them according to the, to the, according to the workings of the Spirit of God, they don't think of telling a life story the way we think of telling a life story. For us, chronology is so important. We've got all, for example, devices. We've got calendars. We've got clocks that can tell us the time to the minute. And some people are fascinated with the idea of having clocks that tell us the time based on atomic clocks so that it's split second accurate. And so when we hear a life story, we expect it to start from the beginning, one-year-old, two-year-old, all the way through to the end, and we expect chronology to be in the story. I Actually, just, what, half an hour ago, I shared with you things that happened to me this week. And where did I start? I started Monday. And then I told you what happened Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And that's our culture. And that's what you expect. If I had have told you what happened Friday and then gone back and told you about how all this was set up by what happened on Wednesday, I mean, you would have understood it if I told it correctly, but it's not the way you would have expected me to tell the story. You want the chronological series, you want the background before you get to the point. Well, to those who wrote the Gospels, they're compiling the Gospels. They're not desperately worried about chronological order, although Luke is probably more chronological than the others. I mean, he starts with the conception of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, John the Baptist, the birth of John the Baptist. But in terms of the the life and the ministry of Jesus himself, they're perfectly happy to arrange it in a way that to them is most convenient. Luke has just told us the parable of the wineskins, and so now he's giving us some living examples. Let's just talk about the concept of the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your maidservant, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And that's as you would read it in the book of Exodus, chapter 20. It's an interesting question you ask Christians these these days. Should we worry about the Sabbath? And many, I'm sure, a whole lot will say no. The law is gone. The law doesn't govern our lives. We, we don't have to live in such a way that, um, that um, guarantee. We don't have to live in such a way that we uh, feel that we're purchasing our salvation. We're, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And look, in terms of getting, in terms of being saved, I agree. The Sabbath's got nothing to do with it. In terms of being saved, we're saved by justification through faith in Christ Jesus. There's no other way of salvation. But 
the Sabbath is mixed in with all those other commandments that we take very seriously. You know, before the Sabbath, we're told not to commit idolatry. And I look around and I see scripture verses on the walls, but I don't see statues of Jesus. You know, I don't see paintings of Jesus. We, we, we don't commit idolatry. And the scripture says you shall not commit adultery and you shall not steal and you shall not murder. And it says these things after the Sabbath commandment and you shall not covet. And we all, hey, we understand Christians shall not commit murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness, shall not, shall not covet or lust after that which is not rightfully given to them. So it's kind of strange that there are laws which come before the Sabbath commandment in the 10 and we say that's the way we live. And there are laws that come after the Sabbath commandment in the 10 and we say that's the way we live. Now, I'm not picking on anyone in particular here. I don't think you have this attitude, but it's kind of strange that you can meet an awful lot of Christians when you tell them, well, then maybe we should be thinking about the one day in seven that we give over to the Lord. And they say, and you're a legalist. <laughs> you must be some kind of legalist. And and it's very easy for people to be legalists about the Sabbath. And I, I've, you know, I've read some um, crazy things. Um, I, I remember one guy I read, he was a, he was a new convert and hadn't hadn't been taught a lot but he was determined to live in righteousness and he would dress for church on Saturday night, including putting his shoes on because he was afraid that getting dressed on Sunday morning was doing work on the Sabbath day. I, I've read about a minister in Canada in the middle of winter, his house backed onto a canal. Now there was a massive blizzard and the roads were closed but the canal went through the housing estate around the back of the church where the minister was the pastor. And so he decided that he'd better at least get to church and lead a service. There still were people who lived close enough to walk to church. So he got some ice skates. He put his Bible and his notes in a knapsack, went down, and he ice skated along the frozen canal to the church and went into church and conducted the service. Now, are you thinking? Good on him. Great work, mate. You know, that's what you should have done. He got in trouble from headquarters at the denomination. It became a trial. He actually was investigated. Did you enjoy ice skating on Sunday? They said if he enjoyed ice skating on Sunday, he was breaking the Sabbath. And that's, a, that's just, in my mind, that's hair-splitting madness. But... This day in seven, this one day in seven, and as Christians we meet on the Sunday, which we believe is the day that the Lord was resurrected, the beginning of the new life. This day in seven should be different to the days around it. I don't want to give anyone rules. I mean, there's, there's nothing we do on the Sabbath, if we do it, that in some way or another could not be attacked as Sabbath-breaking. Okay, did we switch on electricity today? Yes. There are people working at power stations. There are people in control rooms controlling the flow of electricity. They're there and being forced to work because other people break the Sabbath. You're a Sabbath breaker. Did we drive to and from church? Yes. All the emergency services are ready to roll on a Sunday. The police, the fire brigade, the ambulances... 
Someone might have an accident on a Sunday. We're making people work on the Sabbath. We're Sabbath breakers. Do you see what I mean? If you want to, if you want to start splitting hairs and picking at things and being critical of things, there's almost nothing we do that can't in some way be found to be a breach of the Sabbath, of, of the things that we've done today, today alone. So if you're going to ask, well, all right, what should a Christian Sabbath look like? And, and my answer is the same every time, and I know you've heard it before. It should look like this. Anybody who knows you, your next-door neighbour who barely knows you should know that you're different from the way you spend your Sunday. That's what it should look like. They should know. There they go. It's Sunday morning. They're carrying their Bibles from the house to the car. Later on, they get back. They carry their Bibles from the car into the house. They've been doing something. And even the the most uneducated non-Christian in the world knows something. What is it? If they were doing that on a Sunday, you can basically bet they've gone to church, they've been worshipping, they've been sitting under teaching. Your Sunday should look different to every other day of the week. I don't think that you should come down to hair-splitting rules and regulations for yourself because they can all be picked apart. All right, we're not justified by the works of the law. But our Sabbath, our Sabbath, our Sundays, our first day, it should look like a Christian day, a day given over to worshipping God and to serving God. So anyways, just coming back now onto, onto, uh, onto subject, so to speak, onto the text. We're on a Sabbath. We're on the day that Jesus is most likely to be able to upset the religious people of his age. On a Sabbath, whilst walking through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. In the law, and I'll just read you a verse from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. What's that saying? In the law, you're walking across someone's field. Let's say you were walking from here into town and you were walking through standard standing grain, a cornfield, whatever. Grab some if you want to. Rub it in your hands which is threshing it, put it in your mouth, chew it up and eat it. I don't know if you've ever eaten raw grain, but I've grown up on a farm and we often would eat raw grain, especially when we were trying to work out whether or not it was ready to harvest. You'd you'd grab a handful of grain and rub it and you'd chew on it. And by chewing on it and by the flavour of it, you could work out basically how much moisture there was left in the seed and whether or not it was dry enough now to be harvested and put into silos and stored. That was perfectly lawful. But the attack of the Pharisees is what you are doing is not lawful to do on the Sabbath is not that they were plucking someone else's grain, but that in the plucking, well, that's harvesting. In the rubbing it in their hands, that's threshing. And in the eating, that's grinding. They're working. They're doing works on the Sabbath. They're violating the Sabbath. Jesus' answer is really pretty interesting. He goes to the scripture and he says, now we've got to, I I want us to, um, 
Well, let's just look at a few different things. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? So first of all, he points to King David, who in terms of Old Testament, Jewish religion, one of the great heroes of the faith. You know, he's he's somewhere up there with Moses and with Elijah and there would be King David as just great Jewish Old Testament Bible heroes. He identifies with David and he identifies those who were with him, the disciples, with those who were following King David. That's important to remember. Now, as we remember that, let's turn in the Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 21. David is running to escape from King Saul. This is the this is the stage in the life of David where King Saul was jealous of the fact that the Lord had said that David would be king and King Saul was hoping to put David to death. Then David came to Nob at came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest and Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, "Why are you alone and no one is with you?" And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commanded me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commanded you. And I have directed the young men to a certain place. So now what do you have in your hand? Give me five loaves of bread into my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread if only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, "Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out on the ve- when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more then today will their vessels be holy?" So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before Yahweh in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Question, and, and, and I'm guessing you don't know the answer, but maybe you can guess. On what day of the week was the consecrated bread taken out of the tabernacle, taken away from the presence of the Lord in the regular weekly service of the tabernacle? It was taken out on the Sabbath day. The priests took the fresh bread in and brought the old bread out on the Sabbath day. So this has most likely happened on the Sabbath day. So Jesus is answering, look, on the Sabbath, the priests literally gave to David and the men who were with him the bread that had come out of the tabernacle, God's own consecrated bread, which lawfully only the priests were allowed to eat, yet he gave it to David and his men. See, there's a comparison going on here. Who is Jesus? What's one of his titles as the Messiah? Jesus, son of David. Jesus is saying, you're worried about whether or not the men who are with me rub some some grain in their hands and eat it. And the men are with me. And, you know, arguments from the lesser to the greater. Remember, Jesus also quotes later on in the gospel, the Lord said to my Lord, King David, writing Psalm 110. He's saying, I'm the Lord of David. Yahweh said to my Lord, David's Lord, and David was a worshipper of Yahweh. Argument from the lesser to the greater. 
one greater than David is here, and it's me. I'm I'm greater than David. He actually also in another place says he's greater than Solomon. One greater than Solomon is here. And Solomon was literally the son of David who inherited the throne. I'm here. I'm allowing this to happen. So the question is kind of saying, what right have you got to pick points? One, there's biblical history. I know from the Bible that such a thing happened in the days of David when he went to the tabernacle and the priest gave him consecrated bread. I know that I'm the son of David and these men needed to eat this food at this moment. Why are you picking on me and who do you think you are? David entered into the house of God and took and ate the bread of the present presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those with him. And then he says to them, and this, this is also actually a challenge, like this is, the tension is escalating. The Pharisees, by the way, what were they doing there? These wonderful keepers of the law. Why were they near the grain fields? You know, shouldn't they have been in the synagogue or reading a scroll of the scripture or something like that? What are they doing there, by the way, if they're not trying to spy on Jesus to find a reason to bring him down? The Pharisees are escalating the argument, working up to a great accusation, working up to finding some means they think to bring Jesus down. And Jesus is not actually backing away and he's not trying to calm the situation down and he's not trying to um, to defuse the tension. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's really, really put it before them. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. We'll pick it up at verse 9, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days was seated. His clothing was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with fire, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the great boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was given to them for an appointed season of time. So Daniel's had a vision. The vision is a vision in the night. There are beasts with horns and other such things. Reading on, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, the clouds of the With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and came near before him. And to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So this one like a son of man comes before the ancient of days and is given that which is rightfully God's, dominion over all creation, glory and a kingdom. 
Remember Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That all the nations and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting or eternal, a never ending dominion, which will not be taken away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. In other words, this dominion is eternal. If you start to think about who could possibly be given such a kingdom and who could possibly administer such a kingdom and who could, who, who could possibly take upon himself the prerogatives of divinity, the answer is only one who is divine. The Son of Man is one who is divine. Jesus says the Son of Man, obviously he's referring to himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. And now if you turn to Exodus chapter 20, and let's just read the Sabbath law that I read, that I uh, quoted earlier. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. On it you shall, in it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female slave or your cattle or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, first question, just a simple question. Having read that commandment, whose Sabbath is it? Whose name is spoken three times? Yahweh, or the Lord your God. The seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh, Yahweh your God, for in six days Yahweh or the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's God's Sabbath day. So, back at Luke chapter 6. Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So there's a double claim. Claim one, I'm the Son of Man. I'm the divine and holy one who comes into the presence of the ancient of days and has given an eternal kingdom over all of humanity. I'm that son of man. Claim two, as son of man, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. You know, people say, where does Jesus ever say I am God? As though they're expecting that we should find somewhere in the Bible that it just literally says, and Jesus said, and I am God. What's he saying here? What's the importance of what he's saying here? What's the implication of what he's saying here? The son of man, I'm the son of man, is Lord of the Sabbath. Who could rightfully claim to be Lord of the Sabbath but a person who is one with Yahweh? For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth. The seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. He doesn't back away. He actually says things which are actually only going to make them angrier. You know, this, this, this conflict that is building up, it continues to build. And so then we go on to verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Now, I got, you know, I, if there was a preacher or a teacher that you wanted to hear what he had to say, 
anywhere in the world. If Jesus was teaching somewhere, wouldn't you want to sit under the teaching of Jesus himself? You know, there are times when, you know, you think about um, the the story we're told or the, or the narrative we've got at the end of the Gospel of Luke where Jesus explains the scriptures to the two travellers on the road to Emmaus. How, do you, how would you say it? Emmaus? 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 There you go. Emmaus. Thank you. The, true traveler, the two travellers on the way to Emmaus. And it tells us that he explained to them from the law and the prophets. So basically the whole Old Testament, that these things were taught, that the, that the Saviour must come, that he had to die, that he had to be raised again, that he would ascend on high. Is the, could you think of a Bible study lesson you'd, you, you'd, you more want to be at? than Jesus teaching the scripture and explaining to you how every passage, how every phrase, every sentence, everything points to himself. I mean, that's the kind of teaching where, you know, a lot of teachers, I mean, in, in, I know I say it at times, I can't give you the exact, I, it's beyond me. I can't go any further. I, this is Jesus speaking. Well, these guys are in a Sabbath. And they're hearing Jesus teach. He entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they're not listening, they're watching. Their ears aren't open. And in a, in a way, you could say their eyes aren't open. Because all they're looking for is something to accuse. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would fe- heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse them. Basically, even concerning sickness and illness on the Sabbath, they had a whole lot of rules and regulations about what could be done and what couldn't be done and whether or not a man could be carried, how far he could be carried. Pretty much the only sickness or, and I shouldn't use the word sickness, the only medical emergency that was a, that as far as they were concerned was allowed to be responded to like normal on a Sabbath day was if a woman were to go into labour to have a child. The midwives were allowed to attend and help a lady have her baby. But as far as they were concerned, no one was to be healed or helped on the Sabbath day. But he knew their thoughts. But he knew their thoughts. It's funny, when when you're teaching, you can read people's faces. Usually you can. And even if a person's face is somewhat not expressive, you can read people's eyes. Now, I'm just saying he knew their thoughts. He knew a whole lot better than someone like me what was going on in their heads. But he knew their thoughts. And seeing as a, and, and what that means is they're watching him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. He knew their thoughts. So he said, He knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, he knew exactly what they wanted to see him do and he knew they wanted to see him do it out of hatred. He knew exactly what they were planning to do. He knew exactly why they wanted to see him heal. It's not because they wanted to glorify God for the work that God had done. They wanted to accuse him. And so he says to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? 
I think it's in the Gospel of Mark where Luke says to them, if one of your animals fell down the well, wouldn't you dig it out? You know, wouldn't you drag your own animal out of a well on the Sabbath day? And we're told that he was fairly angry as he said these things. He answered anger with anger. After looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his arm was restored. You know, we, we just what do we make of this that all Jesus has to do is speak? Be healed. Someone's healed. Stretch out your hand. Someone's arm is restored. You know, Lazarus, I say to you, come forth. And the dead man is now alive. Who has the power to speak? And simply because that person spoke, it happened. Now, you might, you know, for example, the military man, the centurion, whom we're going to meet later, he said, I'm in the army. I know what it's like. I give an order and it happens. I understand what authority is. But that's authority in order in, in just simply telling a person to do something. And you could, you know, in, in, a, in a truly professional and strict military sense, a military man has a certain amount of power. But because a just you know just because a general says to a soldier, "I say to you, get up and walk," you know, that's a different thing, isn't it? Who has authority in their words? Who has the power of creation and/or recreation in their words? And the answer is, in the beginning. God said, let there be light. God has the power of creation and or recreation in his words. And so divine power has been exercised in front of these people. Divine teaching, Jesus was teaching. Divine power, Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. Probably he'd broken his arm when younger and it had not been healed properly. And so it had become atrophied and weak, unusable. He speaks and it happens. And he did so and his hand was restored, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. You know, it's amazing to think of it, but it's true. You can, I mean, there are people in the scripture. They heard the words of Jesus. They saw the works of Jesus. They saw Jesus die. They know that Jesus was resurrected. And they did not believe. They were not converted. The truth happened in front of their very eyes. The truth happened all around them. God's saving power was there. Yeah, it's all there. And they saw what they wanted to see. They heard what they wanted to hear. They believed what they wanted to believe. They, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. I mean, what, what kind of selfish person could not rejoice and be happy with someone whom we would say has suffered a physical handicap, we don't know how long, but for such a long time in their lives, that they were unable to work and pay their way, 
someone has suffered such a handicap has now instantly been made well, you know, and I, people think of think of um, the mental anguish, you know. I'll trust that we're all decent people here. And the last thing I want to do is pick on people and make fun of something that's obviously wrong with them. It's just it's just the wrong thing to do. You know, if, if, if you saw a man who had an amputated arm, you wouldn't make the armless joke, would you? It, it's just cruel. It's unnecessary. You, you just don't do that to people. And what's more... People who have these problems, they often build up some kind of mental complex about it. Years ago, Lisa and I met a woman. She was married to a man who had one arm and she was talking about the fact that at home her husband would get violent and sometimes really violent and beat her. It's this whole crazy complex that he's built up that everyone considers him to be a weak man because one of his arms was deeply damaged. What kind of people can't rejoice with a man who's just been healed of a lifelong malady? You know, who's just been made, as it were, a whole and complete man again, who doesn't have to hide the stump of an arm or whatever we want to call it under the folds of his coat. And if someone gives him two buckets to carry, he can now stretch out two hands and carry one in each hand. And if he's, if he's got children and one comes running towards him for a hug, he can pick up the child with two hands and hold him out in front of himself before he wraps his arms around him. What kind of people can't be happy for someone who's just been healed in this way? You've got to be folded in on yourself. You've got to be some kind of selfish, I'll use the word pig, just a nasty person some kind of selfish, self-righteous, religious pig that all you can feel is fury that this poor man has finally had his arm set right. He's finally been healed. You know, imagine you're so religious that you're angry with God because God won't do the things the way that you think God should do them. I mean, that's basically what they're saying. They're saying to God, the eternally begotten Son of God, you shouldn't do this on God's day. What's your problem? That's not the way we want it. That's not the way we expected it. But that's the way that it is. The more reliant that people are upon religion for what they consider to be their salvation, the more likely they are to become nasty and petty and obsessed with small-time nonsense. Silly stuff. You know, they come up with all of these rules. Consider, for example, the rule concerning a woman's head covering. Now, that's a difficult passage in 1 Corinthians. You read through it, and Paul appears to be saying that a woman ought to have her head covered And that's why she's been given a woman's hair to cover her head. That seems to be what he's saying. But then there are people who say a woman in church must wear a scarf, must have a head head covering of some kind, scarf, hat, whatever, over her head. Now, there's a couple of ladies come to our church and they cover their head. I've got nothing against it. 
if, if their conviction is that's what ought to be done, let them cover their head. Fine. But the scripture doesn't give them permission to tell every other woman in the congregation that she ought to cover her head. And we don't have, the scripture doesn't give us permission to tell them that they're being stupid and they ought not cover their head. You know, for us, we have no problem with it. If, if, if you feel that this is obedience to the scripture and if you feel that this is the way you worship in all good conscience, do so. But some of you are going to smile because you know the name. I can think of the name of someone who thinks that this is a very big deal and all the women in our church are going to hell because they don't cover their head except for those few righteous ones that do. You know. The stupidity of it. The foolishness of it. Utterly obsessed with minutiae and details that have nothing to do with salvation. What should they be doing? Accepting the claims that Jesus has made. Jesus has said, I'm the son of man. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the son of David. I'm the saviour who's been sent. What would Jesus have been teaching as he opened the scriptures apart from salvation in and through himself? They should have been bending the knee right then and there, right in front of Jesus and saying, we can see by the mighty works that God is doing through you that you are obviously who you say you are. Teach us, set us straight, put us on the pathway to salvation. You are David's Lord. And we submit to you. But instead, they're angry. They're filled with fury and they're gossiping. They discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. How are we going to handle the troublemaker? We don't care how much good he has done. We just want him put in his place. So in all things, always, the most divisive person who has ever been born on the face of the earth is the Lord Jesus. He, I mean, you know, he, for, he has separated humanity. That, that enmity that was spoken of in the book of Genesis, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, it hasn't become less, it has become more. The separation has become not smaller but greater. Jesus is always dividing things. He, he spoke of bringing a sword, of dividing families. You know, children from their parents, in-laws from their parents, etc., etc. This division that the word of God brings to humanity. Why? Well, this is the most important thing there is. God has sent his son. God has given his son for the salvation of mankind. Refuse to, refuse to accept this, refuse to believe his words, refuse to worship him, and God will deal with you. You will indeed be treated as the lawbreaker that you are. And that's the amazing thing. The Pharisees themselves are now the lawbreakers because the true God is before them. And if you will not Accept God for who he reveals himself to be. Ultimately, your God or whomever you call your God must become an idol. 
and they're on the way to becoming idolaters. They've refused to accept God as God has chosen to reveal himself. And so now they become worshippers of an idol, whether they know it or not. And that's the decision or that's the division that Jesus brings to all the earth and to everybody who hears his teaching and hears his gospel. Will you worship the true and living God? Will you worship through me? Will you come to the Father for salvation through me? If not, depart from me, you lawless ones. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that you would open the hearts of the people around about us to the words of the gospel. I pray, Father, that you would make the preaching of the gospel powerful. I pray, Father, for all who've heard the gospel in in this last week, that in the coming week it would do its work amongst them, that, that they indeed would be brought to faith in Jesus and salvation by the power of his blood. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.